Hi, I'm Trevor Cochran and welcome to The Garden Gurus Live. It's our weekly show where Joanne Harris and I share seasonal garden advice. We feature a variety of garden lovers from all over Australia and the world and we give you the opportunity to interact and ask your garden questions. To join the chat live and ask your gardening questions, all you need to do is like The Garden Gurus Facebook page and tune in every week. This live stream is brought to you by Still and Garden Express. Garden Express is Australia's largest online and mail order garden supplier, leading the way in helping customers create beautiful gardens from their garden center to your door. Their easy to use ordering system takes the fuss out of planning your garden. To create your dream garden, head to gardenexpress.com.au. Right, here we go. Hello, welcome to The Garden Gurus Live. I'm Trevor Cochran. It's great to be back with you this morning. A big thanks to Joe for looking after the chair in my absence the last couple of weeks. We've got lots of things going on here at Guru Productions. Uh, obviously, The Garden Gurus is absolutely buzzing at the moment. We've been having some fantastic programs and uh, lots of great content. We had uh, Nigel Ruck in the studio this morning. He's out filming at the moment uh, in and around. He's over here in the West this time around, but we film, of course, all over the country. Now, today is not really about the Garden Gurus TV show. This is about you and your gardens and what you would like to, I suppose, get advice on. That's the chance for you to actually write in, give us your questions, so really important. We do have a few special guests coming up. With winter just around the corner, I'm being joined by special guest Clayton Cowley from Sproutwell Greenhouses. You may have seen him on the show. They've got the most amazing greenhouse and glasshouse configurations, and I've actually got a couple of them at home. I use them uh, to get a lot of my sensitive plants through the winter. Talk to Clayton about that. If you love native plants, you might have seen our little promo photo, but if you love native plants, well, now is the time to be doing a whole bunch of things to get really good results out of them, talk to you about them and why they're so important this time of the year. Um, if you're looking for ways to decorate your outdoor area, we've got David Van Berkel joining us a bit later on with a special offer coming from our friends at Garden Express. And as always, I'll be there answering your questions. I've got uh, Plant of the Week, which I'll feature and uh, answer all your questions. We've got prizes to be won. Don't forget, when you send in your question, put your state and your city in the question. It really helps me a lot because climatically, Australia is such a big place with such variation. It's really important we get it right. And, of course, the last but most important thing is if you like what we're doing, hit the like button. It shares it with your friends and it means that more people can participate. Okay, shall we get into some questions first because we've got a lot of them coming through and we'll start in central Victoria. Steve has written in, his apple tree is blossoming already but it hasn't dropped its leaves yet. Should I remove the blossom? Look, Steve, just leave it. Um, it shouldn't be blossoming at the moment but what we find is when you get um, quite dramatic changes of temperature, sometimes these plants will flush. And usually it means that you've had a bit of a warm spell. So it um, it will just mean that it'll hang on to its leaves longer. It'll, at the same time, it'll start thinking about trying to produce flowers. But it won't affect your crop uh, in in the, the next season. So, of, of course, we've got to get through winter. The tree's got to rest. And it will produce flowers again um, a little bit further down the line in the springtime. And, of course, you'll end up with fruit anywhere from sort of Christmas right through to this time of the year. Uh, we'll head back over here to WA. Danny's actually sent a photograph, and he's from 
uh, Bell Divers. It's a suburb on the outer reaches and southern side of the city, southeastern side of the city. I've got a problem with my lime tree. It does not have many leaves, and I hope you can give some advice on how to fix it. Now, I'm thinking we've got a picture that's going to go up somewhere here. Maybe there. I can see the picture. Um, but I don't know if anybody – oh, yes, you can. You can see it. Now, this is a classic example of Western Australia's terribly poor soils. So all citrus are what I like to call gross feeders. They actually like to be fed all the time. And your lime tree should be just full of foliage at the moment, and it's not. And it's showing signs of real stress. Now, this is just a lack of, of nutrients. Predominantly, trace elements are missing here. You can see it's a little bit on the yellow side. It's not happy. So I would be giving it a boost with trace elements at the moment, and I would be giving it a good all-round citrus fertilizer. And there's a ripper from Osmocote that you can get that's specifically designed for citrus. Just as far as I said the gross feeders, you should be feeding them, even with a controlled release fertiliser, every three to four months regularly. It's really important to get that sort of establishment of the tree and the structure right, really important. Okay, uh, we are going to stay in WA for the moment. Jean is in Lansdowne. I uh, wanted to use fallen dead tea tree branches to attach plants to. I've noticed on... Uh, dead orange tree branches. I already have air plants and what sort of, you know, I reckon Lansdowne's not the Lansdowne here. I think this might be in Victoria. And I've already got air plants there that's um, on there that's sort of dust under it. Uh, will the same thing happen with the tea tree paperbark branches? I want to put climbing plants on them. Look, Jean, I use, uh, I use paperbark branches for epiphytic plants. So I put a lot of um, Air plants, those tillandsias that um, that we know, or old man's whiskers, sometimes they're called. Um, a lot of bromeliads, so they love going onto that into that sort of environment. And because of the paper bark, it holds moisture in there. Um, they take the nutrient out of that slow decaying wood, and uh, they tend to get bigger and stronger and better. And you can stick things like ferns there as well. Um, staghorns and elkhorns are really good as well. So yeah, use them. It's a great idea, and it's a lot better than um, necessarily shredding them and turning them into mulch or alternatively sending them off to the tip. Now let's stay in Victoria. I think Tyson is a good friend of ours. He joins us just about every single week in Baronia. Tyson, can I plant bok choy seeds in my garden bed? Um, can you please give me some tips and advice? So bok choy loves being in full sun, Tyson. If you can plant the seeds into sand, so even if you've got a heavy soil, you can get some nice clean sand and lay little channels, if you like, and then in those channels of sand, plant your bok choy seeds, you'll get the very best results. They do love uh, germinating in a sandy soil first. So spread them out along the line, full sun, give them a water, keep your water up, make sure that they're getting water in, watered every two or three days, and that should be all you need to do. And they're very quick, Tyson, so within six weeks you should be harvesting, which will be really good news. Okay, first question out of New South Wales and it comes from Karen in Coffs Harbour. I'm looking for companion plants to go with peppermint herbs. Okay, so I'm assuming the peppermint being the mint and um, you're looking for companion plants to go with them. Believe it or not, um, companion plants that work really well with mint include, and I have them in my own garden, citrus. So if you're looking for dwarf citrus and put the mint in around the base, absolutely fantastic. If you're looking for something a little more compact, blueberries go really, really well if you're keeping that, that edible plant theme. Um, 
but look, you can do all sorts of things, to be quite honest, and the only downside to peppermint is that every once in a while you'll have to go through and pull it out a little bit and cut it back and just keep it fresh. It is hungry. It does like to be fed on a regular basis, and um, that's about all I can give you, Karen. It's uh, it's pretty straightforward. There's a, quite a few plants. There's really nothing that's not going to do pretty well around the two. Alita, I'm not sure where you are from, but you sent us an email. There's a picture attached. Uh, thank you for the, the inspiring program. It's such a great help to us. We have a lemon tree. We've been watering and feeding it the leaves have curled. And the new ones have a light colour. What do we need to do? Now, we're going to see these problems all the time with citrus. This time of the year, as the weather cools down, it starts to become obvious that we have got some mineral deficiencies. And that's what's going on here. That deficiency with a curly leaf is actually a really unusual one. So it's manganese is something you need to be adding into it. The lighter green, you can see the dark veins in that. That's iron. So you've got a combination of two things going on here at the same time. And what it says is that you should be applying trace elements. So you can buy trace element mixtures and literally put them around the base of the tree and it should be usually on the drip line. So that's the outside edge of the branches where the foliage sits and the water drips down. Put it in around there. That's where all those feeder roots sit. On the ground, water it in. Um, it usually comes like a dusty rock powder. Um, spread that around the outside, wash it right in. You are probably going to need to do it again in about three to six months' time. And you should start to see the balance uh, occur again in the soil. And look, just one little little point with this, and that is citrus do require a good all-round fertiliser. So when you're buying fertilisers and you've got citrus trees, only buy a fertiliser that's designed for citrus because a lot of them lack some of those trace elements, which I think is why you're getting the results you're getting at the moment. Alita, thank you so much for sending the photo in. It's a good good um, point, though. You can send pictures to us. So, um, yeah, it's a good way for us to help help uh, identify what the problems are. Greg is in Parkerville. That's over here in the West. Just seeing when I should spray my stone fruit, peaches, plums, nectarines with mancozeb, pre-leaf drop or after. Thanks team. Okay, Greg, um, always spray your trees after they've dropped their leaves. Now the important message here actually is probably not so much the mancozeb. Mancozeb will clean up a few fungal problems but not necessarily take control of all the big problems. Um, you're a lot better to use, uh, in the old days, they used to use um, a, a combination of copper and um, uh, and a, um, got to think of the other, other ingredient. Um, it'll come to me, sorry, uh, a, a blank moment. Um, but what, what it is, is uh, the, the one to use is actually something called uh uh, copper oxychloride or, or um, cuprex or cuprox. It's a, a mixture of um, a type of copper. Um, it's not a copper sulfate, but uh, it's a copper that's really effective in cleaning off diseases. And that's actually what most of those um, those stone fruit will suffer from. So uh, diseases and funguses, and that'll clean them up. So copper oxychloride, um, you, uh, if you're going to buy, you can buy one called Coside, and that's uh, probably what the professionals tend to use these days. So look for those. That should help. But definitely spray after it's dropped its leaves. And, and to be honest, you can let them rest through the winter. It's not going to make an awful lot of difference. Spray them just before they start pushing out their new growth. So you should see the buds start to swell. Spray them then, Greg. That'll help. Took me a while to get through that, but hopefully that makes sense. 
Tony is in Yarra Valley in Victoria, beautiful part of the world. We've got a team over there filming a food show right at the moment. It's a great part of the planet. Question is, I have two teddy bear magnolias that are going brown at the ends of the leaves and some are completely falling off. What do I do to bring them back up to a healthy condition? Now, typically, I've got teddy bears in my own garden, Tony, and I've seen this sort of problem before, but usually that's occurring when you are seeing um, drying. So it's some kind of dry stress generally around the the root system. Um, So it's very unusual to see that. Now, what I would recommend you do is that you give the ground around the base of these trees an absolute drenching with sea salt. Now, seaweed extract is really good for stimulating root activity. And when you're seeing dry stress, you're seeing the the damage of roots that have gone gone and dried out that are really stressed. So, um, yeah, my suggestion is at this moment in time, soak the ground uh, and if you're finding the grounds dry, could be that it's become hydrophobic, apply a wetting agent, and you can get that sea salt with a wetting agent in it, so that might help as well. Um, but it is concerning because this is one very hardy tree, and uh, most of the teddy bear magnolias that found around Australia originated from Victoria, so that's uh, uh, where they were introduced first. Chris is in WA. Hi, Chris. Uh, you're looking for some help choosing a couple of indoor plants. You've got a shop. You've got pretty poor sunlight, direct sunlight in there, only really the shop LEDs. Now, um, this is a really good good question. So it depends on how tall you're looking for and you're looking for some nice big broadleaf varieties. So things like ficus, there's a whole range of different ficus that you can get, but the two most common ones are probably elastica, which is the classic old rubber tree, almost indestructible, does really well in a dark sort of spot and will continue to grow. And the one that's become unbelievably popular is the fiddle leaf, okay? So that's a really good one to have. Both of them are great. If you're looking for something a little more compact, um, I reckon it's pretty hard to go past in a really dark spot um, for a mid-sized plant, and you're probably talking a metre or so in a 300ml pot, Uh, something like Monstera Deliciosa. That is an absolutely brilliant indoor plant. And if you're looking for something that's small that doesn't get very big at all, remember these guys here. So this is the the ZZ plant. Actually, you can just see we've got some new foliage starting to emerge here, and it's beautiful lime green. So if you can see that foliage, and it's it's this lovely lime green colour, and then when it matures, it turns black. This is a specific variety. Okay, it's called Raven, and, um, yeah, it's an amazing plant. The thing with the ZZ plant, it is probably the most indestructible plant of all. It really is almost impossible to kill, and um, it it doesn't like being overwatered. Doesn't like being doesn't mind being underwatered. It can be in the darkest spot, um, so that's a great one. If you're looking for some maybe nice pots to put on counters. Uh, on either side. I know your store. We went and came and filmed with you recently, Maddington Mowers and Saws, and it's a still dealership with some really fantastic service. So thanks for joining us, Chris. Um, Rena is in Sydney. Hello. Uh, received a pot of Hyacinth hybrid flowers. Can I plant them in the garden now? And when the flowers die, can I leave the bulbs in the garden to flower next year? The answer is, Rena, you can. The question will be whether you get cold enough for those those bulbs to trigger new flowering. Now, in cool climates, they will bounce back. Um, so my answer to you is that I would put them into the garden regardless because, you know, what do you lose uh, if, if they don't actually produce flower or continue to grow? Nothing at all. But hyacinths, we're, we're really in that season now where you can get the hyacinth bulbs and put them into the jars and, and flower them, um, and some people are, are getting them in pots 
uh, particularly in and around Mother's Day. Beautiful fragrant bulb, typically spring flowering. Um, but yeah, I would put them into the ground. You can't go wrong. Deborah is in Kudamandra now. Deborah, thanks so much for joining us. Um, we purchased two little gem magnolias. We've got a bit of a magnolia run today um, a couple of years ago, and we planted both at the same time, one on each side of our front yard. One's grown beautifully. The other is still alive, still looks healthy, but it's only half the height and nowhere near as, as thick and plump. It's still flowering, but again, it's not as prolific as the other. Can I give you some idea how to enhance a smaller one? Well, here's the thing with magnolias. Those evergreen magnolias love being fed. So what I would do is I would balance it out by not feeding the one that's growing really well and regularly feeding the one that is um, is a little bit behind. And do you know what the difference between the two probably is? More than likely, the only real difference will be the quality of the soil. So it just meant when, when one went into the ground in one spot of the garden, um, there's probably some poor quality soil there and it just hasn't got traction. But if you keep feeding it, providing fertiliser on a regular basis, and I mean probably every six weeks, what you'll do is you'll really stimulate some strong growth and that'll get the root system down and it'll eventually find its way and it'll take off. How good's that? All right, well, we've had a bit of a run straight away, haven't we, of questions, and there's a lot more coming through. We're seeing them start to flow really strongly through from um, New South Wales. But before we get into that, I think we might have a chat to my mate, Clayton Cowley. Now, Sproutwell greenhouses are a big part of any good garden where you've got sort of, you know, particularly cold-sensitive plants, or if you like to grow those warm tropical plants, it creates the perfect environment, a glasshouse or a greenhouse. Nobody knows them better than Clayton. Clay, good morning to you. G'day, Trevor. How are you going? All right. Now, I'm not hearing sound from you just at the moment, mate. Have you clicked your sound on? How are we going? Okay. Sound should be on. Can you no, hear me? No, we're not hearing Clay. Can you hear Clay? You can hear him. Okay, is that something that we are doing here? I'm sorry, we're just going to fix this little USB codec, USB codec. We were working before. I'm not sure what's going on there. Okay, I'm just going to try this and see how we go. And see. Fix it, Clay. If not, we might ask you to. Well, I, can, um, I can hear you um, with one more link. How are you going there? Can Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I but... think we might need to restart again. Okay, well, we're going to get you to to turn off and come back in, Clay, and I'll move on with a couple of questions whilst we sort out our little technical issue here. Um, now, let me fly into uh, into those questions because uh, Laura from um, Macville in New South Wales like to grow. I'd like to know actually what the best fertilizer is for gardenias um, that have magnesium deficiency. All right, so they're just like citrus um, gardenias. They love a really complex fertilizer, and that's the key. Um, you said you've got wonderful big little gem magnolias. They've got lots of yellow leaves and brown spots. How do you treat it? Again, this is food. Right now, plants actually need that. This is one big window of opportunity to give them a good feed as you go into the into the winter months, and um, you should find that things are uh, things are looking pretty good come springtime. But give them a really good feed, all of them. The gardenias, you can get specific gardenia magnolia um, 
uh, rose fertilizers. These promote flower and lovely deep green growth. But most importantly, they've got complex um, complex uh, micronutrients. So you've got magnesium, manganese, iron, all of those really important micronutrients are in those specialized blends, which is why you should look out for those. Hopefully that helps Laura. All right, let's see if we've got... Let's see if we've got Clay back. Clay. No, I'm still having a still technical. no good. I'm not sure what's going on here. That's strange. We were chatting with him earlier on, but it's um, – and I've definitely got sound working here. So we'll have to um, work on that and come back to you in a moment, Clay, and try and work out what it is that we are doing wrong. Maybe we – oh, Clay. No? No, still not hearing you. All right, well, we'll keep working on that. Susie, I'm not sure where you're from. This is why it's so important uh, to tell us where you are from. It does help enormously, albeit I think I can help you with this one. I've got a problem that doesn't – I've got a problem area that doesn't grow anything well. Now, the plants are very stunted. The area is around cocos, um, the cocos palms, so there's lots of roots and you're renting, so you don't want to spend big dollars, but you want it to look nice. Now, cocos palms do have really um, vigorous roots and they will suck up all the goodness out of the soil and around the base of them. So pretty much the only way to sort of fix that is to have very low growing ground covers around the base of them. Um, a lot of people do things like ivies and stuff like that to just give it a nice green effect. Um, so putting a bit of a layer of soil over the top, planting in some ground covers over the top, they will spread around and they will green the area up, but um, you're not going to find shrubs doing too well when they're competing with cocos palm roots. This is a quite a common problem that a lot of people um, experience, so it's really interesting. Now, uh, Graham, we'll keep moving along. Susie, I'm not sure where you were from, but please, folks, make sure you tell us where you're from. They are coming through, but I'm seeing the odd one where we don't have a suburb or town. Um, so... So Graham has asked this question. He's from Melbourne. Can I transplant a camellia now or should I wait? Now, the plant is still young. It's about a metre high. Many thanks. It'll depend on how established that plant is and how much of a root system it's got. Graham, basically, as soon as we get um, the, the winter weather uh, comes through and the soil's quite moist, that's when you can sort of move your, your camellia. And you want to try and keep as much of the root system with it as you can. One of the tricks is to cut a bit of a, a, a 180-degree arc around the outside into the soil about that deep, cutting the roots, and then give it a soaking with sea salt. Then about two weeks later, go and do the other side and, again, soak it with sea salt, and you should be able to actually ease the whole plant out and move it into its new home. Camellias do take a bit of time sometimes to recover from transplant, but they will transplant is the message there. And um, sea salt, because of that seaweed extract, that King Island bull kelp that's in there, um, it seems to do these magical things with roots and make sure that they are, um, they're not a problem. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully you can get through that and, uh, and sort of the winter is the best time. You will affect the flowers. So if it's got any flower buds on it, it's going to drop those flowers. Just be aware of that. Now let's head north. We're going up into Queensland. We're on the Gold Coast Glen. Good morning, Trevor and gang. I went shopping for PowerFeed with Trevorte AM and got quite confused as to which one to buy. Can you please give me some suggestions? Right. So PowerFeed is is made by the same people 
who makes sea salt. And it uses a few other ingredients in there. So it's got nutrients in it. Uses, um, it uses um, uh, fish emulsion and it uses some seaweed extract in there. It's a really good fertiliser and that's the liquid form. And then they created a granulated form and the granulated form, they went to the people who make Trofforte and they said, we want to use this technology that, that you guys have got. And that's the microbial technology. So they've, they've developed that and that's what you're seeing in your local Bunnings store because that's where Power Feed with Trofforte technology is available. Um, great product, does a really good job. Um, it, it does put microbes into the soil and it just depends what sort of plants that you are wanting to feed. So that's, uh, that's really the key. Um, and they've, they've all got their names on the label. So I hope that helps. Uh, it's probably not a huge help, but I might explain what the difference is between the two. Of course, Trefort AM is another product. It's found in independent garden centres, and it has a complex. It's about 60 micro macronutrients and uh, controlled release fertilisers. It's a different, different product altogether, really. Um, okay, let's go. We'll come down from Queensland. We'll come back to Perth for a second. Michelle's in Perth. Can I look after my aloe plants? How can I look after my aloe plant here in Perth? It's currently on the balcony. Aloes do really well in pots. They really do love being in a pot. And it's surprisingly, you think that aloes actually grow in sandy, barren soil, but they don't. They love a really good, rich potting mix. So the real key here is to make sure that you actually have um, your potting mix, um, you know, is, is a really good potting mix when you plant them up. And what will happen is it'll just get bushier and bushier and fill the pot out. So that's all you've got to really worry about. Okay, let's uh, keep rolling along and we'll go to Barnsdale in Victoria. Sharon, um, you've said, I'd like, to, I'd like to know, can I grow Little Prince and Leucospermum in a pot? Thanks. A little prince, I'm not 100% sure. I, I suspect they're, I know leucospermums are obviously uh, proteas. The answer is they do really well in pots, but you do need a specialised potting mix. So you want one with native, you know, ideally for native plants, okay? So they're a little bit sensitive to, to phos, uh, the, the, the phosphorus buildup in soils. So um, fertilisers have got to be the right kind of fertilisers and uh, the potting mix has got to be the right sort of potting mix. But, yes, they look great in pots. All right. Well, we haven't solved our problem, I don't think, as of yet with clay. I can see him there, but you, yep, we, we have. Are we hearing clay? Okay. All right. What we're going to do is we're just going to go to our still video segment of the week. We popped out to still Osborne Park, and uh, one of the most common problems that we have is having line on your line trimmer literally breaking off and then needing to be restrung, but still fix that. And I went into the store and asked them, you know, what the technology is that they're using to make it so much easier. And here was the answer. Now this has to be one of the most commonly asked questions we get. It's the one when you've got the line trimmer, you've spooled it for the first time, you've run out of line, how do you refill it? Brett's gonna give me a hand. We're here at the local steel dealer. And what's the trick, mate? All right, Trevor, the, the first thing that we need to do is work out which cord will suit your machine. So with the steel range of cord, they're all color-coded yep. to make it nice and simple. It used to be a lot of mucking around and quite difficult to do. You don't have to take the head off the shaft anymore, do you? No, with our new head, all you have to do is line up the arrows. Oh, so it's that arrow 
pointing to the arrow above there. So that's your line. That's it. So once you've got them in line, mm -hmm. we then take one end, we push it through. We then pull it through. That will then leave us with two separate pieces. Approximately the same length. Approximately the same length yep. on the outer. Yep. Once we've got that all the way through like that, we are then following this other arrow. We hold the outer and we wind it. It's as simple as that. There's no taking the head off, there's no unscrewing the end, there's no having to wrap it around the right way. It this is. is dead easy. It is as easy as you could possibly get. And the best thing, because it's winding itself on, once you go to reuse it and you bump that on the ground, it will throw itself out. And that's the reason why you're heading to your local steel dealer. And Clay Cowley's joining us. Clayton, how are you, mate? Good morning. Sorry yeah, for all the technical very issues. Very good. Very good today. So um, I guess I sound better than when I'm muted, so it's, that's one good step. <laughs> you weren't muted. It was some technical <laughs> issue we had at this end, but we fixed it, mate. So, oh, Clay, look, let's talk about Sproutwell Greenhouses just for a minute and tell us a little bit about the company. Yeah, well, we've been going since about 2011. Um, been a steady progression from a business point of view. Started out quite small and and just developed over the years, sort of introduced a lot of new products and, you know, different ranges that, you know, are a little bit more versatile. And, and we've seen a huge growth in probably the last three years, particularly, um, just in the uptake of greenhouses and people wanting to, you know, have a bit more security around their own food and just be involved in that, that growing phase. So for us, it's um, it's been quite good through COVID. Uh, we've been, you know, fortunate from a business point of view that um, things have been relatively stable. It comes with, you know, general supply problems like the whole world's experiencing at the moment but it's yeah. just it's just managing those things as best you can and and trying to keep you know customers informed as best you can and, and manage their expectations because at the end of the day we are all waiting longer for things than what we're used to. Clay um, it, it's also important to mention that you're a family business. Correct yeah family business so myself and my wife started the business you know back in 2011 and um, we've got a few other family members that work for us and we've got about 12 staff so it's a it's a good little number we're a, a nice tight-knit team and um, we all enjoy what we do. Tell me about the greenhouses themselves so you've got greenhouses and glasshouses people buy them in kit form they're delivered out to to uh, wherever you live is that how it works? Correct. So we, we deliver Australia-wide. Um, we do have an assembly service, which is more of a local um, service we provide in and around the Geelong and, and Melbourne area here in Victoria. But, um, yeah, from a hobby point of view, most people will put them up themselves or use a you know handyman. Um, as you said, we can deliver them to your door. We've got greenhouses that start at, you know, a little seed raising kit right up to something that might be seven metres wide by 30 metres long. So we're, we're providing more and more to schools and ed educational institutions, which is um, nice to see. And we, we do offer schools a, um, a specific discount to, um, you know, put a greenhouse into their space. Well, it's a perfect way to grow, particularly those sensitive plants, so seedlings and so on. It's fantastic. But, mate, on the weekend, I happen to be in, in uh, my local little town, Kalamunda, and uh, a lady came up to you on the street and said, oh, listen, you you know, I, I was going to enter the competition to win a, a Sproutwell greenhouse, but I actually bought one a, a couple of years ago and I've had it. And she said this year I grew ginger, turmeric um, and galangal, and she said I grew so much of it. At the rate, I think they're about $40 a kilo or something. She said, I grew so much of it that I've actually um, been in a situation where I have got myself um, 
uh, enough money from selling the ginger to pay off the cost of the greenhouse. How, how amazing is that? Yeah, it is pretty cool. And even in the cool climate here, we grow um, ginger and turmeric and, you know, we've got a, a self-watering pot that we grow. And I think last year we, we harvested um, about four and a half kilos of ginger out of this one, you know, 40 litre pot. So it's um, it's amazing what you can do when you've, you're giving your plants that environment that they need. Absolutely. And, and look, you know, just talk about those pots. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you don't have one handy, but certainly uh, being out there uh, in Geelong and having a look at your displayer and seeing the new pots that you designed, um, they are fantastic. They are the best self-watering pots I've seen. They've got a wicking device in them. Um, the design is is far more superior than anything I've seen out there at the moment in the marketplace. They're a really good idea. People can buy those off you as well, right? Yeah, they can jump on the website and buy, buy those. They're called the Sprout Pot. And what we wanted to do was create a pot that had a, a self-watering but also self-filling um, ability to it. And and the, the water reservoir and the, the growing medium is, is separated, so it makes it easier to move the pot around. They're not so heavy um, yeah. like some other pots can be. So they're a really great unit and um, you have great growing success because you've always got water there for your plants, so they're not waiting on you to, um, to water them. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, it's actually really, really, really impressive design. I, I love them. I thought they were fantastic. Now, mate, we've got this great competition. Now, it's, um, we're going to put in a couple of thousand dollars worth of garden goodies that are, it's going to come with the, uh, with the greenhouse for the winner. But tell us a little bit about the options that they might have when it comes to uh, greenhouses or, or glasshouses. Yeah, well, I guess with that competition, we've kind of put a value on it that it allows people to to be a bit more, I guess, choice per preferential. So it's not like they have to zone in and pick a particular product. So whether they want, you know, a glass house, there's even we do shade houses as well for, you know, the, those really warm climates where you might want, you know, a lot more cooling. Um, there's, you know, our orangery style, which is more of our outdoor room greenhouses or you could go for our Grange which is probably one of the most popular greenhouses that that is around and that goes in a three four five or seven meter wide um, scenario which can be extended up to 20 meters long so something around eight thousand dollars is going to get you you know a really nice decent size either glass house or a really good greenhouse of around you know that that four by six or eight meters long so that you're talking up to 30 square metres of space. You're growing a lot of stuff in that sort of space. Mate, I wanted to wanted to ask you, because look, there's, there'll be a lot of people look at this and go, great, love, you know, I love the idea of having one, but I'm not yep. sure how to put it all together. Now, you, one, provide comprehensive um, plans, obviously, to be able to, to install it, and if uh, people need permission from council, it helps them with council as well. But also, most importantly, you back it up with after-sales service, don't you? Yeah, correct. Like, we've got all the really detailed instruction manuals we've got um videos that once you make the purchase we send you out a link you can view the video um watch that step by step we've also got guys in the office that um you know if you're having any trouble shoot us an email give us a call and we can um talk you through it we even sometimes facetime some of our customers because you know it just helps them through a you know a patch that they might be struggling with one part of it and yeah just uh get them back on the right track and and keep going how, how long does it take typically to put up a, a say, a medium-sized grange? 
Yeah, so one about, say if you had a, a three metre wide by four metre long, we'd say, you know, you've never done one before, allow yourself, you know, a couple of people, one to two days, depending on, you know, your ability level. But, um, you know, for our guys that have installed them, we do one of them in about four or five hours, but it's um, it's one of those things that you just want to allow a good, a good day or two, yeah. Yeah, no, that's fantastic, mate. Look, um, this is a great prize. You're a great bloke and, you you know, great family company. You guys are doing some really good work that's helping home gardeners be able to bring these protected growing environments in. Really, really good work, mate. Thanks so much for joining us. No, I appreciate and, uh, it. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll be announcing our winner, which I'm pretty excited about. I know there's a lot of people who are tuning in, asking questions, when's it going to be announced, when's it going to be announced. Yeah. It's coming up. Stay tuned because um, yeah, it's, it's going to be great, Ned. And we'll be able to help them through the whole process and consult with them so that they get the, the right product, whoever does win. So. Well done. Well done. All right, mate. Well, look, thanks very much. Um, no worries at all. Catch up with you, buddy, and we'll look, for, look forward to seeing you again real soon. No worries. Thanks, Trevor. See you, Clay. Bye. Now, this really is a, a wonderful family company. Um, Clay and, and the family have been doing this great work. I've got, uh, I've got a grange and I've got a, a, a beautiful orangery glass house at home that I've put in. We're growing all sorts of um, climate-sensitive things. So my environment gets pretty cool during the wintertime um, and it means that there's a lot of tropical plants that I like growing that really probably shouldn't naturally grow in my environment. But if I move them into the glass house during the winter, they get through, they produce crops, they look fantastic and they don't set back. So it's kind of cheating, I know, but hey, listen, that's what us us gardeners do, isn't it? We um, we try and grow so many different beautiful things, some of them not necessarily ideal for our environment. All right, now I do want to talk to you about um, about native plants and, and the reason why I chose Grevillea as, uh, as one of the feature plants to show you was because um, at the moment, grevilleas are really important in my garden and they're important for a very specific reason. Pretty much everything has just about stopped flowering now. We're right at the end of the flowering process. The weather's cooled down. Um, some plants are going to dorm- dormancy and in about two months' time, um, all the bush plants, all the, the native plants will be in, in flower and progressively flower as we move into the spring. But there's this little lapse in time, this little moment in time where uh, there's not a lot of these plants flowering. Now, grevilleas do flower all year round, and this time of the year they tend to be flushing lots of flower. And it's important because I want my bees to be able to get some pollen, to be able to come and get the nectar out of these flowers and take it back to the hive and use it. And that means that I've got to make sure I've got a reasonable, uh, reasonably healthy plants, but also a reasonable number of them. Now, just to put this into context, if you want to grow natives, now's actually a really good time of the year to, one, be planting them, and two, to be feeding them. And there's a couple of products that I wanted to mention that will help you get through and avoid... Um, Avoid the pitfalls that a lot of people have with Aussie native plants. So many Australian natives, the predominantly the what we call proteaceous plants, so the banksias, um, even things like bottle brush and grevillea can be quite sensitive to high levels of phosphorus. And there's also those South African plants too, you know, the pincushions, the leptospermums and leucodendrons, you've got the comb bushes and, of course, proteas. And you should not forget also our own Australian uh, waratahs as well out of New South Wales. They do not like any of them uh, high levels of phosphorus. So 
That's why people at Osmocote developed a special phosphorus-sensitive fertiliser designed to get the best results out of these plants. Now, not only that, not only is it now the time to be giving these guys a good feed, but if you want to grow some, you can grow them in pots as well. And the guys at Osmocote have developed, guys and girls, sorry, have developed a um, Osmocote for native plants. It's a potting mix that um, will really give you great growth results. Now, these fertilizers are actually incorporated within the potting mix. It's just one of that the, the superior, I suppose, um, uh, quality that professional growers rely on and home gardeners can now get their hands on. It's such a great product. You can't go wrong because it's controlled release. It'll feed for six months and now's the time to be applying the fertilizer and to be potting up into the potting mix. And just we, we had a question earlier on about um, uh, proteas. Well, proteas, yes, absolutely. They definitely need that special potting mix. So keep your eye out for it. Little couple of little tips about this. The, the, the little prills that are in Osmocote, and you can see, I'm going to show that to you. You can see the prills. You'll know it because you'll see it in the, the pots in the soil of the pots of the plants that you you buy when you, when you go to the nursery. Um, that prill technology is incredible. It's it's driven by temperature. So it's what they call um, an osmotic or osmosis action where um, when it's cold, it releases small amounts, but when it is um, when it's warm, the prills will release more, and that really ties into the plant's growing pattern. So that's why it's so important. Now, there's added wetting agents in here, there's, oh, we're moving around a lot. There's um, wetting agents in here. Uh, there's boosted trace element levels. Um, it really is just amazing technology. So this and the potting mix, if you want to grow natives, and you should be growing some natives, and you can do it in pots if you don't have a big area, um, now's the time to do something about it. And your bees will love you because there's not a lot of options. But when you look at the amount of flour on those, you know, that little bunch of flowers that I've just picked, it's quite incredible how prolific they are and how much goodness they can get from these flowers. And these flowers have got a really sweet smell, and that's exactly what the bees need to feed them. So Osmocote potting mix for natives and also, of course, the fertiliser. Get into them and it'll do them the world of good. All right, uh, I know what you're saying. You've got questions. You want to hear more more of the answers, don't you? Okay, well, there are a lot of questions flowing through, and some of them are from our regulars and some are from some new new names that I'm not quite familiar with. For example, Louise has joined us. Now, you didn't tell us where you're from, Louise, but I'll do my best to help you. You said you've got an area in your garden that receives late westerly sun. It's mostly shade until 4 p.m. Oh, you're from Sydney. Sorry, yeah, I see it. Um, are there any suggestions, please? You love the show. Thank you so much, one, for your support of the Garden Gurus. It's You've got no idea how much we all appreciate um, all of you supporting us, and um, we do our best to to return that by giving you as much great gardening advice and inspiration as we can. Now, a position that receives late westerly sun basically means that you can grow a lot of those exotics. So you're in Sydney, so it's it's you know subtropical. It can get a bit cool during the winter, but 
to be quite honest, you can grow things that, that I wish I could grow outside, things like crotons. Crotons are beautiful colour you know, colourful foliage plants. You could be putting in uh, all the bromeliads. There's some beautiful bronze that colour up spectacularly and you could use them all around the base in a rock garden, for example, with some crotons and some of those colourful tropical foliage plants, even things like um, the coleus, which, you know, there are some beautiful perennial forms of coleus that would add lots and lots of colour. So it's not a bad spot. It's what you're really talking about here is just growing shade plants, and um, you can get all sorts of colour, as I said. Uh, things like uh, azaleas are another opportunity. If you want to think about something that's a bit different, those cooler climate plants, but will do well in this environment, azaleas and camellias will do incredibly well. So there's a few suggestions, Louise. Um, thanks very much for your contribution and your kind words. It's very much appreciated. Cheryl is joining us via YouTube as well, and she's from WA. Hello, um, I'm glad you say you're glad you made the live chat. Well, we're glad you made it too. My question is, I've discovered mole crickets in my raised garden bed. They seem to be eating my potatoes and they possibly could be. And the thing about mole crickets is that um, if you can kind of get them to move off uh, the property and, or move them away by using a couple of things, one of them is making sure that the, the bed is nice and moist. They tend to get into drier soils and um, they can do a fair bit of damage to some of those spuds, they'll eat little chunks out of them. So um, you could treat it that way. There are some chemicals, but look, you're growing edibles, so I'd much prefer you not to use chemicals um, when it comes to uh, you know trying to treat this. So maybe just do that. Um, the other thing is uh, you can dig around a little bit and uh, remove them manually. There's never going to be that many that, um, that you couldn't get a little bit better control by manual removal. Okay, uh, we're going to go to Sam in South Australia. I bought six Chinese pistachios last year, bare-rooted, but they don't seem to be growing. What do I need to get them moving? Well, Sam, the Chinese pistachios are a deciduous tree, so you're going to find that they're going to go dormant pretty soon. You should be seeing a bit of colour coming on the foliage. But the trick will be in the springtime, when you see the first buds um, start to move, is to feed them. So they really do need to be fed and you need to make sure that moisture is getting down evenly into the soil and in and around the roots. So that's where a wetting agent probably would be a good idea to apply. But don't even worry about it until October. So at the moment, let them rest during the winter. Um, they'll, they will establish naturally and slowly uh, get themselves going. But it's always the first year uh, after a bare-rooted tree has been planted, that the tree is putting all the effort into developing that new root system. You usually see the second year you'll start to get some pretty good growth. So make sure they're getting water, make sure that they're getting some nutrient in the springtime, and you should be fine, uh, particularly in SA. What a beautiful tree, Chinese pistachios, one of my favourite autumn trees. All right, are you looking for some new ways to decorate your outdoor area? Well, I know a guy who can help you because he's constantly thinking about stuff like this. And when we talk about decorating, we're talking about maybe bringing some formality in. David Van Burkle, good morning to you. Trevor, good morning to you. you crazy, crazy plant guy, always thinking of, uh, of different things. Yeah, well, I've been called crazy more than once, my friend, and uh, it may well be deserved, but we'll talk about hedging plants for the moment. Outdoor areas like decorating, bringing formality in. You know, the, you got that um, that Garden Express poster, you know, with with the well, – it's actually behind you, right there, yeah. 
great example of how you can bring wonderful formality into a garden using hedging plants. And you guys have come up with a way to help people get themselves started, right? Yes, absolutely, Trev. We've got uh, we've got our um, fifteen packs of uh, of the of the hedging range of plants from buxus, fatinias, uh, some silver sheens, uh, and depending on which ones you get, you know, you get more and more meters of, of hedging for each of these packs at fifty percent off this week, Trev. Fifty percent off is an amazing deal. Now, I saw them at Mifkus. I saw them. They 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 got those blister packs. They come. They're wonderful little starter plants, and you, you had all those things. You had some things like the Japanese sacred bamboo as well. And what I was interested in is some of it can be formal hedges, but some of them can be informal, like the the, the Japanese sacred bamboo, Nandina domestica. Um, it's it's a really wonderful sort of small compact plant that doesn't necessarily need to be hedged if you've got the nana form. No, not at all. You can uh, you can mix it up, get a little bit twisty in what you're doing. You know, line a fence place between some roses, all of those different options. So beautiful little compact plants, I suppose, all of those hedging varieties. Uh, if you did line them up in a row, would get you a variety of sizes on uh, on the type of, you know, border that you might want to do. So we tend to use that word as well, border and hedging, uh, because yeah. not all of them are going to grow the height of your, your timber fence kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, typically, depending on, the, I suppose, the variety, um, you know, 15 plants is probably going to give you somewhere between five and 10 metres, depending on, you know, what the type of plant is. Uh, that, that's that's a significant area um, to, to cover, isn't it? It certainly is. Like, uh, you know, your average patio might be might be four to six metres long, so you could, you know, very nicely do the edge of a, of a new patio or, uh, or down a driveway. And mm-hmm. um, 10 metres is quite a bit, particularly something like, you know, for 10 years where you would want to give them a lot of space. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, general rule of thumb, three to four plants per metre. If you yep. want that edge quicker and thicker, you might plant them a little bit closer, uh, but otherwise you can spread them out and eventually, that they, you know, they'll touch together after a couple of years. Yeah, look, it's actually better, um, folks, just as a little tip, it's actually better to, to give them a bit of room, a little bit of width that will often fall into that trap of, Putting, packing them a little bit too closely together and then later on when the hedge is just seeming like it's really going well, you'll see the odd plant will die out and it, it has to refill that gap. And that's just saying that they were just a bit too competitive with each other. So I, my, my philosophy is always about 300 to 400 mil between plants, depending on the variety. David, I, I wanted to talk to you about box because a lot of people get those um, Bucks's hedge, the English box is the one that they they think of works really, really well in Tassie and Melbourne. But in drier climates, um, you can still have a box, but you're probably best not to go for the English. You want to use something a bit different, and you've got those options as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the the English and and even the Dutch, you know, the Dutch is a more compact hedge, really dwarf yeah. growing in its nature, but again, probably a cooler climate. Whereas we've got the uh, the Korean box, which is really good up into those into those warmer climates as well, and uh, and Japanese box for that really compact, full-leaf structured plant as well. Yeah, and they, they're both um, very, very good in drier climates. So I know uh, it's it's the, the Korean and the Japanese box that we would be using in Perth and in Adelaide, the same thing, um, but certainly uh, you've got the options here, and that's probably the, the key point. Mate, I wanted to ask you, know, I, I, the, we should just run through the deal for this first, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about a couple of other things you might have at the moment. Um, 
you got fifth. So let me just run through this so we get this right. You got fifteen plants. Um, that's what fifty mil pots. You've taken fifty percent off the recommended retail. So that means that for Garden Guru viewers, they can get six to eight meters of hedge for what? Forty dollars. Simply forty dollars. I know. I always glare at Rowan when we say these things, but. Uh, you know, the 50 mil is, um, you know, that's our entry-level range, nice small product, ready and raring to go to create a beautiful hedge. Best not done in the middle of summer. So, yep. you know, autumn, uh, winter, spring spring planting is also very good. So uh, it's a good wow. time of year for us to, um, to move a heap of plants to gardeners to get that formality sorted in their garden. Um, David, we've got a, a question that's flown in from Port Stevens in New South Wales. Nicole's asked the question, and it's a really interesting little, uh, little little question she's got here. They've got a little convict-built church, and they'd love to put a hedge around the outside. They were looking at camellias, and they said she said that there's one already um, there that's shade-protected by the church and thriving. Um, roses thrive there. Um, she said it will be full sun. Sometimes uh, wind, which is they're not too far from salty water, um, and she said they seem to be drawn to the white double formal. The taller, the better. What would you recommend for that sort of environment? Swinging at me is Westringia. Um, just would make that beautiful, slightly taller hedge, you know, to about a metre, a little bit yep. of colour with the flowers in, uh, in spring and summer, a um, bit of a coastal feel to it as well. Uh, yeah. That's probably one if, you, if you're looking for that height. I was going to go straight for Unimus as a, um, as a, as a nice dwarf compact thing. But, yeah. uh, but Stringer really really jumps out and grabs me for that purpose, trip. And yeah, probably you're right. The, 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 the point that is really important there is that they're not far from salty water. Where Stringer is a coastal plant, it does exceptionally well in those sorts of environments without any problem at all. Good yeah, question. Exactly. You've got the, and you've got the greyness of it also to uh, to set off, you know, the, the building. So, yeah. uh, and then, yeah, that little bit of fragrance as well. It, it just comes with everything, that one. Yeah, good. It's a, it's a really good question, Nicole. Thank you. Now, David, um, we, we know the deal with the, with the hedging plants, and I know there's a huge range. People need to jump online to your website and check out the different types because that's the best way to do it and, of course, take up this very special offer. But just, I was chatting to Rowan earlier on. I just asked him whether you might have some spring flowering bulbs left. And he mentioned that you guys are doing something pretty special with them. Yeah, I wondered if I'd get in trouble from you, Trevor, not uh, bringing this one up earlier. But it is, a, it is a last minute thing where we put together all the packs of the, the leftover from the season. It's, it's a wide variety of things. You know, we might have 20 of this red tulip and 15 of Kamark and, and some daffodils. So, we create our mystery box. We just put it together on Thursday, and I think he's nearly sold them all, but we reckon yep. we'll come up with about, a, you know, 100, 150 more that's still online for sale. So it's just a mixture of different varieties. Yeah, we put about $130 worth of value. We throw a pair of garden gloves in there, the, the Gardener's Advantage garden gloves, yep. 70% off, $39. That's an amazing deal. And sorry, so just, just, just to qualify... People can take that offer up right now by going to your website, um, gardenexpress.com.au. 100%. And there's a, there's a banner up there with the mystery box bulbs. It's your last chance for the season to get some spring bulbs for your garden to tuck in behind that new little hedge that you're going to put up. Probably yeah. perfect. 
Now, David, look, I don't want to be rude, mate, but could you nick off because I need to get online and place an order before they're all sold. Done, mate. I'm gone. <laughs> thanks so much, mate. Thanks for joining us and thanks for your support. It's, uh, it's fantastic, folks. Don't miss out on that. We know that these things sell out really, really quickly. All right. I think we're going to keep flying because we're running out of time. We've got about four or five minutes left and so many questions, and I don't want to disappoint anybody. Sandra is in central Queensland. Is it too late to pull all hippiastrum bulbs from their beds? I had an accident with a lawnmower man spilt Roundup everywhere. Oh, my goodness, that's terrible. My beloved 28-year-plus daylilies were poisoned and some hippiastrums. I need to revitalise the soil. So if I pull them out, uh, what can I do to care for the bulbs? Well, the bulbs should still be growing at the moment, Sandra. Um, so I, I would wait until you see the foliage yellow and they start to um, to, to sort of go dormant. Um, what a disaster. That That's every, every gardener's nightmare and uh, one of the reasons why um, you, know, you have to be so careful with how you use uh, you know, herbicides in the garden. Um, that's a real worry. Um, yeah, so I'd, I'd wait until they die back and then I would lift them uh, and then I would be looking at getting lots of organic material into the soil. I'd be using one of those fertilisers with the microbes in it because those microbes also break down chemicals and, and turn them into um, organic compounds that uh, are not poisonous. Um, boy, oh, boy, that's a, that's a real problem. Samantha is in Mount Gambier in South Australia. Can I transplant my rose now as it's quite cold? Well, if your rose has gone dormant, if it's dropping its foliage, the answer is yes, you can. In fact, um, South Australia is the capital of rose growers in Australia, and most of those rose growers will be either digging or getting ready to start digging the bare-rooted roses, which you'll often see in the mass merchants, the big hardware stores and... and um, uh, people like Kmart, etc., where they sell them for about six or seven dollars a plant. That's where they come from, South Australia. Pretty interesting. So yes, you can go for it, Samantha. Aruni is in Ardross. That's in WA. I've got a beautiful standard rose bush yesterday as my Mother's Day present. Congratulations. That's great, Aruni. Good kids too, by the way. I want to put it in the ground. Is it okay to plant it now and next to native plants? Well. You know, we've been talking about the fertiliser. We're talking about the Osmocote um, fertiliser that's designed for native plants. It doesn't have a lot of um, a lot of phosphorus in it. In fact, it has very little, if, if any. And yet roses do require it. So if you're going to stick them next to each other and you've got something like a banksia as a native plant, um, your banksia, if you feed your rose with the right fertiliser, you'll kill your banksia. So the real answer is keep them separate. Um if, if you've got a standard, maybe keep it in a pot. They really do love growing in pots, and the trick with them is to be feeding them. But you want a flower-promoting fertiliser, um, and there is an osmocote uh, that's for roses, gardenias, camellias, and azaleas that you want to keep your eye out for. But um, I wouldn't mix them up, Aruni. I'd keep them separated if I was you. Um, Janine is in Camden in uh, southwest uh, Sydney. Hello. What would go well in some large garden beds under our big gum trees that would give a nice cottage feel to complement our heritage-style home? Now, we only have a few clivias at present. I was going to suggest to you clivias. Clivias would do really well under big gums. That's kind of one of those difficult spots because the root system of gum trees tends to stop and also the, the, the oil-rich leaves tends to stop a lot of other plants growing or germinating in that environment. Um, 
You could go for some native plants that would work under there, and tea trees are a good example of ones that will grow in that environment. But to be quite honest, um, cottage plants, I would be looking at mass plantings of clivia. Um, it's a great way to go. It's such a beautiful plant. And you can get a cream, a yellow, obviously the orange, and quite a red-coloured flower um, as well. So you could get some nice splashes of different colour. Now it's time to be um, planting them out as well, by the way. Steve's in central Victoria. Hi, Steve. My apple tree is flowering again. Should I remove the flowers or will they drop themselves? Um, very unusual conditions uh, when you're seeing apples flower out of season, but don't do anything. Just leave them. The tree will be fine by itself. Um, Mother Nature does these things, and she's just how she works. It won't produce fruit, but um, it will produce flowers again in the spring, and you'll get fruit next season. Nicole's in Maiponga in South Australia, a great part of the world. I'm having problems with harlequin bugs. Now, try dishwashing soap and warm water. It didn't seem to do anything. They're destroying your small hedge. Please help. All right. This is a really important one. These guys can do a lot of damage, and um, what you want to do is you don't want to be spraying harsh chemicals around. You want to move them on, which is why that dishwashing soap and warm water thing has sort of gone around as a, as a solution. It's not really going to do the job. What you want is white oil. So go and get some white oil. It could be eco oil or horticultural oil or white oil. There's a whole bunch of different brands, but get it and spray it over the hedge. Now, harlequin bugs have hard shells for their bodies, and when the oil sticks to it, they hate it. So they get up and they'll fly away and they'll go to other plants, plants that they should be spending their time on, not your hedge. So hopefully that helps. Albert is in East Kennington. Hi, Albert. What's your tip for a successful cutting propagation? I've tried to propagate petunias, daisies, ivy cuttings, and a lot more with little success. Now, I've I've applied the common methods, taking cuttings 10 centimetres, leave two leaves cut in half, you've dipped them into propagation powder or gel, you've dampened the potting mix, um, you've loaded the propagation tray and stuck the cuttings in there, put the tray in a small greenhouse, um, you put the greenhouse in a spot under the house eaves that's bright with no direct sunlight. Can I identify any mistake in your method? Um, you're doing a lot of things that are right there, Albert. What is probably probably affecting your success rate is probably going to be consistency of moisture. So trying to keep that potting mix consistently moist, a propagation mix. Your propagation mix needs to be a proper um, cutting mix. So if you were to make it yourself, it would probably consist of something like coarse river sand, um, cocoa peat, fine-grade cocoa peat, and uh, you would probably have maybe just a little bit of bark or sawdust in there that's been composted down. Um, what I'd suggest you do is when you do it, one little trick is for the first week, have a little coat hanger, a little bit of wire over the top that, that goes into the top of the pot. So do two of them so it goes like that and grab a plastic bag. So one of those little freezer bags is ideal. Pop that over the top of the pot with a lucky band around the base. Now, as long as it's been watered on the inside, this will keep moisture inside for a lot longer. And what you want is the first two weeks for these plants not to go backwards quickly, but to, to sort of basically set some roots to callus the, the bottom of those cuttings and start the process of growing. After two weeks, you have to take the plastic bag off because if you leave it on for too long, you'll end up with fungal diseases. So it's probably a little thing you want to try. Just out of interest, petunia is pretty difficult to grow from cutting, but daisies, ivies, they should all be growing quite well. So 
try my solution, I think you're probably right on the edge. And and just, Albert, one more thing is that if you can get yourself a heat pad, you can buy these and pop it on the bottom of the pot, so the pot sits on top. That warm uh, soil on the base really encourages rapid root growth. So that's what the professionals use, and that's what gets really, really good cutting strike. So hopefully that helps. Okay, uh, we'll stay in WA just for a second. Carol's and Jane Brook, um, uh, thanks very much. Uh, welcome back, Trevor. Thank you. My son's got an olive tree. What do you feed them um, because the olives are not big? Well, uh, Carol, it could be that the variety of olive you've got is actually an oil olive. Most of the oil olives are very small olives. Um, so you, you might just want to have a bit of a quick think about um, the variety that you've got because generally the fruit – um, will always be the same size. It suggests to me that it's more a varietal issue than it is a, um, a fruit size due to fertiliser issue. Um, so give that a try. See, so just have a look at it and just have a bit of a, a squeeze. Generally, as I said, the smaller ones are for oil, but you can pickle them. Uh, and the thing with them is if you crush the olive, that olive oil, you put it on your hands or you know, on your skin, it is unbelievably good for skin health, uh, really terrific way to um, moisturize your skin naturally. Okay, have you been enjoying our 20th anniversary series of The Garden Gurus? Before we wrap up this week's show, I thought we'd give you a sneak peek of what's to come in episode 12. Helleborus, also known as the winter rose, are cold hardy perennials that do really well planted beneath taller trees or shrubs. And they're famously known for their nodding flowers that come in all sorts of colors. And over time, they'll gradually naturalize an area looking fantastic. This lawn hasn't had a speck of fertilizer in five years, yet it's beautiful and green. And if it gets damaged, it recovers at lightning speed. If you were to sink a shovel into the grass, you'd come up with a square of black earth loaded with earthworms. Let me share a secret with you. The autumn is by far the best time of the year in my garden. In fact, I love it. I prefer it of all the seasons. Sure, spring is fantastic, but spring is about flowers. I'm not saying autumn doesn't have a flower. Look at the beautiful dahlias that are coming through and really do stand out this time of year. What a day. Gone through a lot of questions, covered a lot of ground. I hope you've enjoyed this morning's show. Um, it's been a great effort. Again, um, the team here do remarkable work. Robin and Sam have got us through, and we've had a couple of little technical problems, so thanks for your understanding with that as we've worked through those. But we got there. We got to answer a lot of your gardening questions. Now, the good news is that I'm actually going to be back in the chair next week, next Monday, and I'll see you for Garden Gurus Live, 12 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. That's 10 o'clock over here in the West. Um, Robin will be sending a message out to our seed winners after today's show, and uh, we will make sure that we roll any of the questions that we missed over into next week's show as well so we do get them answered for you. Don't forget, you can always send photo submissions or a video through to us, but you've got to do it by Wednesday. It just gives us an assistance with um, the technical side of things. Make sure you tell us your name, your state and suburb, and, of course, outline the question. And if you've got any questions, you can always jump onto our website. It's a great resource. You can catch previous stories from The Garden Gurus at thegardengurus.tv 
or you can go to our YouTube channel, thegardengurus.tv. And of course, you can listen back to today's live stream and catch up on previous episodes by visiting Spotify, Apple Podcast, or Audible. They all carry our podcasts. And don't forget, of course, this Saturday on Channel 9 at 4.30 p.m., make sure you check out Episode 12 of The Garden Guru's Autumn Season. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Trevor Cochran, and we look forward to seeing you again really soon. Happy gardening. Thank you.